Welcome back to 10 and 20, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Sarah. And my name's Brad. This is part two of our two-part series on Andrew Jackson. Make sure to check out our previous episode first. And let's go back to our conversation with David. So we left off last week. Andrew Jackson was just elected and his wife, Rachel, passed away. Unfortunately, we don't know the exact cause of Rachel's death. Uh, Unfortunately, there was no great diagnosis. What we do know is that it's going to affect her heart and her lungs. And ultimately, the stress of the campaign in 1828 is going to be what probably did her in. And Andrew Jackson will never forgive John Quincy Adams, but especially Henry Clay, who he knew was really the one pulling all the strings in the background, smearing her reputation. He will never forgive him. So she almost literally died of a broken heart? Quite literally. Wow. Yeah. Now, uh, one thing I will just say as we're getting into the presidency of Andrew Jackson is that, again, these are all going to be pretty complicated issues for the most part. A lot of these are going to be also happening at the same time. So instead of going chronologically here, it's probably best to just kind of take each thread and kind of take it to the end. That way we can kind of understand what's happening in this okay. story. Okay, so what's the first thread? Well, the first one's going to be really one of the first major debacles of Andrew Jackson's presidency. This is what's called the Petticoat Affair or the Eaton Affair. This came up uh, last season briefly with our episode uh, with Grace. Yeah, and it ties close to home because the Eatons moved to Franklin. Absolutely, and what we're going to see is that uh, John Eaton, the Secretary of War, had just married this new uh, wife of his, a woman named Peggy. And Peggy Eaton was going to be uh, accused of roughly the same things that Rachel was. Not quite bigamy, but the idea that she was perhaps going to be seeing men while she was married. Now, again, that's mostly going to be baseless. We don't really have proof of this. But what I will say is that Andrew Jackson, just having come off the same experience with his own wife, is incredibly defensive of the Eatons. So he's sympathetic. He's incredibly sympathetic. And what this event really ends up being is that it's almost a litmus test for who does Jackson who does Jackson trust and who is in the outs. Now, ultimately, where this was really going to be occurring is more with the wives of these politicians, not so much the men themselves. But let's be honest, even today, if your wife tells you we're not seeing them, you're not seeing these people. Uh, <laughs> what I will just say is that uh, we're going to end up seeing only a couple people really immediately are going to be avoiding issues. The most notable of which is going to be the Secretary of State, Martin Van Buren. Now, together with Eaton, Van Buren would resign his seat. So this way, Andrew Jackson had an excuse to completely clean house. He had a way of kind of starting from scratch. We know that's going to be when we start to see what is called the kitchen cabinet of Andrew Jackson come to be. Basically, a group of unofficial advisors, people who are not confirmed by Congress, people who are really just loyal to Jackson only. And while you could always argue there's this sort of level of uh, helping people who helped you, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours in politics, this is really going to be kicked into overdrive with Andrew Jackson. There was at least the pretense 
that you were picking the right man for the job. That's no longer the case. In fact, one uh, one senator named William Macy would go so far as to dub this the spoil system, as in, to the victor go the spoils. Hmm. This is going to be an issue in and of itself. It's going to lead to rampant corruption. That's going to be something that actually lasts well into the 20th century. And it's also going to be really kind of ironic again, because remember, one of the big accusations against President John Quincy Adams was corruption. And yet, ironically, Jackson's administration is a bit more corrupt. So, yeah, that's, that is interesting. It, like Those things just seem to be like synonymous with politics today, mm-hmm. but... You're saying that it was kind of his administration that was like, okay, now I'm now I'm elected. I'm going to put all my buddies in in important positions. Exactly, and it's all because one woman just couldn't be accepted at the parlor table somewhere. Hmm. Something to kind of think think about. Now we know that the main uh, instigator of the petticoat affair was actually going to be uh, Fluoride Calhoun. Oh yeah, Fluoride. Remember yeah, that's that. such a good name. It is right. It just sounds like something you want to spit out of your mouth. <laughs> it does. Uh, Now, she, unsurprisingly, is the wife of John C. Calhoun. And so, being his wife, John C. Calhoun was not going to be going against her wishes just to please Jackson, which immediately made Andrew Jackson and John C. Calhoun enemies. Now, John C. Calhoun's going to come back into the story, though, because he is going to end up being really pretty center to another major issue that Jackson deals with. John C. Calhoun was the vice president of the United States, and as vice president, he authored a theory of how the Constitution could work, basically what he called the nullification theory. Now, the main reason for why this came about is because of what was going to be a unfair look at tariffs. I think if you remember last time we were here, we did uh, the episode on James K. Polk, and I mentioned a little bit about tariffs and all this, I think. Specifically, though, what we're talking about is the tariff of 1828, Nicknamed the Tariff of Abominations. Abominations. Yes. Very can, dramatic word. I think we can tell how people viewed that. At least some people. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, what I'll say is that just because tariffs are complicated, the main purpose of this was to promote business and industry by placing a tax on imports. Because most of the industry was concentrated in the north, it could be argued that this put a high burden on southerners, especially in areas where even food was being imported. Like Calhoun's own South Carolina. So you're, so you're saying you, the goods you bring into the country make them more expensive, which means people will buy American goods more, but it also has a way of making everything more expensive in the short run, and mm-hmm. that negatively affect the South more than the North. Exactly. The initial outrage to this tariff abominations is perhaps warranted uh, just because it was a pretty high tariff. Uh, now... This is why Jackson did attempt to pass a lower tariff by 1932. But, now, while this one had full support of the North, and about half of the support of the South, it still didn't have South Carolina. So, in 1932, John C. Calhoun actually resigns the Vice Presidency, rejoins the Senate, so that he can argue his nullification theory personally on the floor in Congress. This is going to be really getting heated quick. Wait, because just to clarify. So he was vice president and he just says, I don't want to be vice president anymore so he can go back to the Senate. Can you just do that or did he have to run for Senate again? Mm, well, at the time, the Senate 
was not going to be determined by direct election like it is oh, today. Yeah, you're right. It is actually going to be something that's determined by the state. Um, so as long as you have people in the state government who can support you, you're going to be okay. Okay. After this compromise tariff failed, South Carolina is going to start to prepare what looks like almost for war. They have people getting armed. Now, Andrew Jackson, in turn, will then be infuriated by this action by his own vice president, uh, nonetheless. And he's going to demand that Congress grant him permission to prepare to enforce the tariff by force if necessary. Now, ultimately, South Carolina will back down. And a new compromise tariff that South Carolinians could agree to will be passed in 1933. But it's interesting to think just how close we came to civil war before it actually happened about 30 years later. Yeah, that is interesting. So South Carolina basically just is trying to say, we don't want to abide by this tariff. And so we're threatening to leave because of it. And Jackson's like, no, you're not going to do that. It was just a standoff. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I think you should maybe for our listeners explain what Calhoun's nullification is. Well, it's actually going to be very similar to the argument that uh, the Confederate government would make against Abraham Lincoln's policies back in the day of the Civil War. Now, what we're going to see is that it's basically an idea that states have the authority to completely disregard federal authority. By virtue of the Bill of Rights, the Tenth Amendment, states have that right. Now, of course, this is an argument that does still pop up even now today. Um, You see it a lot when people talk about, say, abortion rights, gun rights, but truly, I don't think we've ever been closer to war than when we came with this tariff battle and then, of course, the slavery issue in 1860. And so uh, South Carolina backs down and that's the end of it? For now. Okay. John C. Calhoun will keep being the great nullifier for the rest of his life. And he will live until just before the Civil War begins. Yeah, so another was, 20 years in the Senate or so. Yeah, he was one of the architects of secession, really. Effectively. From that cheery subject, we need to go into something a little bit more serious. The forced removal of Native Americans from the Southeast is undeniably the most controversial part of Andrew Jackson's legacy. This issue was central to Andrew Jackson's first State of the Union address. People sometimes try to remove Jackson from this argument by saying that it was actually President Van Buren who enforced most of these policies, but no. He pushed for this law, this Indian Removal Act. He got the law and he signed it early into his second year in office. He's still president for six years after. So this is his idea. This is his policy. I feel like this is one of the things that a lot of people know about Andrew Jackson is he was the he was the spearhead of the Trail of Tears. Yes, and well, one thing I will say just before we get into that, there is going to be a slight defense we could give Jackson on this one. It's very slight. He very likely did truly believe that what he was doing was right. He was probably the most experienced person alive at that time who had fought these people down in the southeast. He knew the tribal structures and he knew that white settlers weren't just going to stop coming. He knew that conflict was going to keep happening 
if these two groups were in the same area, no matter what. So his idea was basically move the native tribes someplace else, draw a circle around them, and we won't cross that line. Now again, though, his idea of preventing war and saving lives really doesn't work. Kind of breaking this down a little bit. We know that two wars start because of this. The Second Seminole War and the Second Creek War. And we know that 61,000 Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole were forced to leave their homelands. And around 17,000 of those people died of disease, exposure, or the aforementioned warfare. The Trail of Tears was widely going to be accepted by the general public. This was not controversial in its era. So most people were behind... I mean, I guess that's why he was voted president, because exactly. most people were behind his, that's exactly uh, his right. beliefs in this regard. This is going to be probably one of the best examples of the darker side of Manifest Destiny. And, well, there's really not any way to say this other than just, no matter what Andrew Jackson's intention was, it doesn't abdicate him. So, but I guess to dig deeper into what you just said, he it's possible he didn't necessarily know or intend for this forced march, forced removal from the homeland to result in the deaths that it did? He intended for the removal. He didn't intend for the aftermath that would occur. I don't think he had enough of an imagination to really know that would be what would happen. But it did. And from what we can tell, he wasn't very repentant on that. And the public was behind him. And the public was behind him. We also got way more into this in the episode we did with Grace uh, last year uh, called Leaving Home about Native, Amer- Native American removal. If you want to know more about those specific details, you can always check out the episode. Right. Now, from that subject, we have to go back into the complicated stuff. Banking. I know that's everyone's favorite subject back Yay. at home. For most of his life, Andrew Jackson had a deep mistrust of the banks. This is a most likely attributed to the fact that he just made some poor investments. And really, it's kind of shocking then that he's put on the $20 bill, of course, uh, today. But it's not that shocking that he would start a bank war. It's not that shocking he would start any kind of war, to be honest. Yeah, I suppose you're right. He seemed to be a bit of a fan. (laughs) Now, a little background. Uh, The second national bank of the United States divided Americans incredibly sharply. On one hand, it did stabilize the economy and assist the government by doing things such as extending credit where it was needed and providing fiscal services for the Treasury Department. So it was an important thing in our government. On the other hand, the bank was also going to be something that favored merchants and speculators to the expense of farmers and artisans and was going to be seen as a corrupt institution as the bank often involved itself In politics. In fact, the president of this bank, Nicholas Biddle, oftentimes saw himself as a sort of kingmaker. Biddle partnered with Henry Clay to submit an application for rechartering the uh, the National Bank four years before its uh, charter would expire. So they're doing this a little bit early. Now, the main reason for this is because they were trying to ensure that the bank was going to be used as the predominant issue 
for the election of 1832. Now, ultimately, we saw that Clay, uh, Henry Clay, will push this bill through Congress, and then Andrew Jackson will veto it. The veto is perhaps his most famous address. It's probably going to be the thing that most people have heard over the years. I won't quote it all here, but what I will just say is that this is the moment where Andrew Jackson truly affirms that he is the voice of the people, especially against the moneyed interest. Now, of course, uh, Congress took a lot of issue with that, as they were the House of Representatives and the Senate. It's kind of in the name of one of them. They are the representatives of the people. But it's actually going to be interesting that we still do see more what Jackson sees. The president is the one who is directly elected by the entire nation. He is the one who is truly going to be representative of the people. And we've kind of kept hold of that idea even today. Now, Clay and his supporters will end up losing this election of 1832. This is because I think, A, they just completely misunderstood, uh, misunderstood the population. They thought that Jackson was going to be seen as somehow incompetent for vetoing this bill. And the other big issue is that Nicholas Biddle, quote-unquote genius, very sarcastic there, <laughs> the genius that he was, actually printed millions of copies of Andrew Jackson's veto address, and then at his own expense, mailed them to pretty much every corner of the United States. <laughs> Expecting that to be... His uh, downfall. But it, it sounds like he's just kind of campaigning yeah. for it. Exactly what it was, yeah. Nowadays, you would never do that. But I guess Biddle just really, again, underestimated how Jackson would be viewed by the rest of the country. And what was... Is there any way of assessing what was Jackson's... Uh, popularity level at this point? He was even more popular than the first time he was elected. Really? Okay. Yeah. So, so he actually gained uh, an influence. What I can say is that after the election, Andrew Jackson will begin to move the federal deposits out of the National Bank because it's basically doomed at this point. Now, he also did this because he didn't want Biddle to mess with the money anyhow. So what Jackson ends up doing is he moves it to a bunch of banks that he trusted in the state level. Now, this is also going to be something a little controversial because this is going to be something that many people today would refer just as Andrew's pet banks. It's like he chose banks that were loyal to him. So was his issue the corruption of the Second National Bank? Or was his issue that the Second National Bank didn't like him? Did he want his own version of this bank and just couldn't have it? This is a bit of a debate, you can see. But in the long run, this is not going to be the best thing for the country. One thing but I will say... But a good say, thing for his second term as president. Exactly. Um, now, there's a lot more we could get into with this. Again, banking is not simple. Uh, but what I will say is that Nicholas Biddle, kind of as a last try to get Jackson's popularity tank, almost tried to purposely start a recession... Now, it failed, and we do know that Andrew Jackson will be censured for his actions of vetoing. So, he has some political blowback. Henry Clay is going to be trying to kind of take him down a peg as well, but nothing really worked. Now, after this, the economy is actually pretty stable. It's actually a pretty good economy for President Jackson. He is the only president to pay off the national debt. Completely. But, and this is a big but, 
The Panic of 1837 started only weeks after Jackson left office. The Panic of 1837 uh, being the worst economic depression this country had seen to that point. I'm kind of going to be frank. I'm of the opinion that uh, the author John Meacham would also have here that uh, he wrote American American Lion. Lion. Yeah, it's really one of the best Jackson biographies. I do recommend it. It's a great resource if you want to check it out. Uh, But John Meacham and I both kind of had this idea that it was probably not good for the economy that the bank was gone. But it did at least remove people like Biddle from being able to hold so much sway over the government and over politics. Now, of course, you could say that there's still a lot of wealth in money in politics. It's not really gone away. But at the very least, it's no longer in the hands of one person who's frankly terrible at doing it. Nicholas Biddle is a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Now... In many ways, President Jackson's legacy is as defined by the things he didn't do as the things he did. For instance, again, he did veto the rechartering of the bank. He is also going to be the president who vetoed the most bills up to that point. And actually, he still held the record until Andrew Johnson. Interesting. Yeah. He also is going to be the oldest president. He didn't die. That's another part, big thing to mention here. He never died? He didn't die. What? He's still alive. He's still walking the earth, Brad. Yeah, haven't you been our, before? In our wallets. Exactly. He's still here haunting us. Now, uh, but no, what I'll say there is that uh, Andrew Jackson was the oldest president, and he was also the first president to have an assassination attempt made against him. Wow. Now, this is actually just kind of a fun story. Uh, the assassin in question, Richard Lawrence was convinced that if he killed President Jackson, he would become the King of England. Hmm. Now, as he approached Jackson, who at the time was attending a funeral, he brought out two pistols, both of which misfired, and as he saw him standing behind him, Andrew Jackson began to then mercilessly beat Richard Lawrence to near death with his hickory stick cane. Now, of course... Well, not undeserved, I guess. I well, definitely like Liam Neeson. Everything can be a weapon. <laughs> yes. Now, that's going to be one of those stories uh, where people have said, is that why he's called Old Hickory? No, but I like this story better. It's <laughs> <laughs> true, yeah. Upon leaving office, Andrew Jackson was going to be asked if he had any regrets. His response, and this is not fictional, this is an actual quote, I didn't shoot Henry Clay... And I didn't hang John C. Calhoun. (laughs) Those are his regrets. Those are his only regrets. Kind of makes you wonder, though, what would have happened if he did do those things? Because he could have challenged Henry Clay to a duel. He could have possibly forced the issue of uh, nullification and treason and gone after John C. Calhoun. And I think it's important that we note that even though Andrew Jackson would later die in 1845... He was 78 years old. His legacy and his term's impact will carry through for decades after the fact. Good example. His term in office gave rise to the Anti-Masonic Party, the Liberty Party, and the Whigs. And created the Democratic Party. He created the Democratic Party personally. Now, the man he did that with, Martin Van Buren, would also create the Free Soil Party. And so a great chunk of A bunch of of party animals. They are. 
But all these parties then would end up forming the Republican Party. Ah, so he built his adversary. Mm -hmm. He did. Now, we also know that President John Tyler and James K. Polk both will try to annex Texas after getting Andrew Jackson's advice on the matter. So he even had a hand in that. To just really drive the point home, I mentioned that Andrew Jackson had a sort of unofficial board of advisors, his kitchen cabinet. These people in the cabinet long outlived Andrew Jackson. Again, many of these people lived into the Civil War, and perhaps the most interesting of them, a man named Francis Preston Blair Sr. He was an editor for the Washington Globe. He was the founder of the Republican Party. And the Blair family patriarch. Now, if you don't know the Blairs, they are going to be important politicians pretty much into the 20th century. They're probably only one family that really is more influential than theirs, and that's going to be either the Adams family or the Kennedy family. So this is the kind of level we're talking about. And their patriarch, Francis Preston Blair Sr., he is going to live until 1876. He was one of the leading voices against Reconstruction. Wow. His son, Montgomery Blair, was the postmaster general for Abraham Lincoln. Interesting. So even though Jackson's already gone, the age of Jackson continued on. The one thing I always just like to talk about again with Jackson is that everything he did was intentional. Everything you think you know about him is what he wants you to know about him. He's so intelligent and he's so methodical in what he does. He's actually one of the first people to hire someone to categorize and just follow him around all the time so that people know what is Andrew Jackson doing today. So in an age before Twitter. In an age before Twitter. <laughs> he hired his own paparazzi. Yeah. Actually, you're not far off there. The gentleman in question that he hired was a man named Ralph E.W. Earl, a portraitist, who lived at the White House and would paint portraits of Andrew Jackson on a regular basis. So paparazzi's not too far off from what we're talking about, actually. Okay, so where does the nickname Old Hickory come from? The actual story behind that goes back to the War of 1812. Andrew Jackson was going to be ordered with about 2,000 men to proceed to New Orleans before he fought the Creek War to go down and assist a general, James Wilkinson. It should be noted, James Wilkinson was actually treasonous and, in fact, was uh, going to be called possibly one of the most terrible people in American history by President Theodore Roosevelt. So even as much as we were saying Jackson got in trouble for possibly committing treason, Wilkinson actually did commit treason. <laughs> now, ultimately, Wilkinson and Jackson are not really going to be working together very much. In fact, Jackson would be ordered to stop midway at the city of Natchez, Mississippi, give up his provisions to Wilkinson, and then dismiss his men. Basically just find your own way home, by guys, war's over. Jackson will give up the provisions. He did do what he was asked, but he would not just dismiss his men. Many of them had grown ill, and because he knew that many of them would not survive a trip home without someone taking care of them, he personally marched all of his men back to Nashville, Tennessee, and paid with this out of his own pocket. And it actually almost completely bankrupted him. So for this act of compassion and, just frankly, toughness, he was called Hickory, and then as he got older, he's old Hickory. Old Hickory. Yeah. So, I mean, I find it interesting with Andrew Jackson because he was 
certainly embroiled in a lot of things that we find to be morally reprehensible today. Yeah. But he was also somebody who was voted on twice, uh, was beloved by the people. And so, like, if we have problems with the legacy of Andrew Jackson, that also is kind of our problems with ourselves and who we were. And if we find those problems in him, it shows us how far we've come since then. True. And, well, all I'll say is that if that is what we're going to take away from this, then Andrew Jackson was right. The president is the representative of the people. He is what we were in that era. Thanks again to David for joining us on the podcast. If you would like to support the show, head over to boft.org slash podcast to sign up for our e-newsletter or to purchase one of our 10 and 20 t-shirts. Send us an email at podcast at boft.org if you have any suggestions for future episodes and follow us on Instagram at 10 and 20 podcast. You'll get some pictures and that go with uh, these two episodes on Andrew Jackson and make sure to leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Thank you so much for listening.